This week on the Backtable podcast. Whose unmet need are we trying to solve? Uh, and, and increasingly, it's not the patient's unmet need or the doctor's unmet need. It is the payer's unmet need. You know, what are the customer acquisition and sales channels and who, who's going to pay for it? These are the types of things that goes into my mind before I, you know, step into something. And that once you have that idea and you get past that step, you have to recognize where do you need help. Do you need engineering help? Do you need business help? And you have to gather people around you that you trust, you like, are capable, who complement you. And then the company starts. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you will hear stories from physician entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. This is Brian Hartley as your host this week. I'm a radiologist living in Silicon Valley and co-founder of an early stage medical device company in the pulmonary space. We are so excited about our special guest this week, Dr. Mahmoud Razavi. Mahmoud is a serial entrepreneur and world-renowned interventional radiologist. He has co-authored or authored over 300 publications, abstracts, and book chapters. He's also co-founded an incredible eight companies with an impressive four exits, including stroke device company Neuravi, all combined returning close to $600 million. He served on the board or been an advisor of over 40 additional companies. That being said, he has rare experience starting several successful companies, and he's had the opportunity to observe many others as a board member. So today, we're hopefully going to hear a little bit about his experience and what are some of the key elements to think about if you want to start a company. So uh, with that, uh, such an incredible career. It is so great to have you with us today, Mahmoud. Uh, thank you, Brian, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Awesome. Okay. So uh, at the beginning, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Where do you live? What's your training background? And we'll go from there. You know, I'm an international radiologist by training. Uh, I uh, uh, completed my medical school at the University of Southern California, did residency at UCLA, and fellowship at Stanford, then went back to UCLA and the VA uh, as a year in faculty, and then went back to Stanford as faculty uh, for about 10 years or so, 11 years, and then went to a private world. Uh, it was a year with a group of uh, cardiologists in Bay Area, uh, and then joined a multi-specialty group uh, down in Orange County, California, where I live now. Awesome. And so, uh, how long you, you said, uh, you were at Stanford for 10 years, correct? Uh, yeah, I was there from, uh, 1995 through 2005. Okay. And I think I read, were you fellowship director at one point? Yeah, I was the fellowship director. Uh, it was a privilege to be there. It was truly an honor. And, uh, during those 10 years, uh, three years, you know, three fellows per year. If you look at, uh, you know, those 30 fellows, they're who's who in Russian radiology. So I'm proud of that. That's awesome. Uh, can you, can you give us some names there? Well, yeah, we've had, uh, you know, uh, during those, those years, uh, we had, uh, Stephen Keese, Rush Venanza, uh, Dan Z, Rusty Hoffman, and, and a number of others, Rob Min. Um, Manrito Situ, these are all people who, uh, have achieved great things in their careers. You have chairmen of radiology, you know, uh, multi-million dollar NIH grants, uh, chiefs of sections, other entrepreneurs, serial entrepreneurs. It was a great group under the direction of Mike Dake. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And we, we've spoken with Mike Dake and he, he has a great story to tell as well. So tell me, what does your practice look like now? Well, I'm in a multi-specialty practice here, and uh, we don't do any diagnostic, but we do all the international, and we're not part of the radiology group. And it, it is a private practice with a very strong academic component. Uh, you know, we lead the uh, clinical trial center for the whole cardiovascular unit at the hospital. Uh, that includes uh, surgery, cardiology, uh, and of course, uh, you know, international radiology. Okay. That's great. Thank you. 
Let's dive into your innovation career, which is extremely impressive. So can you tell us what was your first innovation project? Uh, how did you get into innovation and, and maybe a little bit about your role? Well, you know, uh, it's interesting. When I was at UCLA resident, it was the hub of picture archiving communication systems at the time in the early 90s. And there were a lot of engineers that we worked with and doing research with. And, uh, and you could see a lot of people have new ideas and software, and it was quite impressive. And uh, we had a lot of hits and misses back then, trying to, you know, we were entrepreneurs wannabe uh, and didn't know how to be entrepreneurs. Uh, we did have, you know, there was one engineer that had a software that uh, he and I got together. I don't want to call it a success, but, uh, you know, we sold it. But uh, my own thing started actually Late in my residency and early in my fellowship, the carotid stenting was coming on the scene. And I decided that, I, uh, you know, carotid stenting needs a distal protection device or a proximal protection device. The idea of having a protection device obviously wasn't new, but there was nothing in the market. And so I, I designed something and I didn't know what to do with it. Uh, so I went around trying to sell it to the company representatives, knowing, you know, how ignorant I was. I had no idea what to do with it. And so there was a startup company at the time. Again, I didn't know the difference between a real company and a startup company who was trying to commercialize and they were in the neurospace. Hmm. They came around to UCLA and I met them and, you know, met the rep, not the company. Mm -hmm. And I showed them the device and he said, oh, let me connect you to my CEO. And then, and so we made a trip to Northern California and, uh, little did I know at the time the company had itself been acquired, uh, by a larger company. Mm. And I gave all the stuff that, you know, my protection advice to them. And then later on, they got, uh, admired into a lot of lawsuits with the companies, so on and so forth. So nothing happened. Mm. Interestingly enough, about the same time, there was another uh, cardiology fellow who had a different design and, and, you know, he went about it the right way and it was a successful exit and, and they, uh, the device is still in use. Uh, and then after that, three, four other protection devices came out all successful. So mine, obviously, because I had no idea what to do, uh, nothing happened to it. Okay. There's a lot there. So you designed this device. You said, uh, where were you in your career again? You said late residency during fellowship as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you, you designed a protection device. How did you prototype it or design it? Did you just make drawings? Did you file patents? Those things? None of those. That's where, where you know, a sort of naivety comes in. I know I had, uh, I had a lot of drawings. I had a lot of concepts and, uh, you know, without having made a prototype, I sort of thought that I knew what French size it needs to be. Of course, that just comes from the fact that I didn't know anything. And then that translated into a uh, sort of a semi-prototype product that was with, with the startup. Uh, and, and, and through that, I actually met uh, the engineer at that startup who was the CTO at the time, which we later on did another company together, but, uh, no, uh, did not file patent, did not, uh, make prototype, didn't get, didn't get anywhere past some drawings. Mm, okay. So, uh, it, you said you ended up working with the CTO later on and founded another company. Uh, that's interesting. Um, but I guess looking back, what would you have done? differently because it sounds like you learned a lot from this situation. So I'd love for our listeners to hear, like, if you could kind of just concretize that time period and say what you would do a little differently. Yeah, we see you're a product of your environment, uh, and, and your, your learning process and, and your experiences. And I was in a highly academic environment. The, the idea was not to make money, but to, to contribute to science at UCLA. Stanford environment was a little bit different in that there was, it was both. And, you know, it took me a while to learn. What would I have done differently is what I would recommend people doing right now. Start from step one. You do your, you do your research. You, you file the IP. You find people to help you. The key issue is going to be you have to have a mentor in the process. You have to talk to others. One of the biggest mistakes I have made uh, throughout my career, that's the... Uh, 
entrepreneurship and the development of device and companies that I tried mm. to learn by observation rather than by asking an active engagement. You know, I, I, when I was at the Stanford, just around me, around the office, the corridor that I was on, you know, it was Tom Fogarty, Paul Yale, Peter Fitzgerald, Mike Dick, mm -hmm. you know, John Simpson. I worked in his group. These are wow. some big names. And I, and I always tried to observe rather than go knock on their door, say, hey, you know, Paul, Tom, Mike, John, uh, I have this idea. What do you guys think? I, I never got a good mentor and I tried to learn by trial and error. That's a mistake. If there's one lesson that uh, budding entrepreneurs or those in the middle of processes, companies can sort of can take away from this is that you gotta find somebody who's done it before, gotta involve them, get a mentor and ask a lot of questions. Oh, that's, that is, that's great. So should any of our listeners, if they're going through a similar process, uh, or have thoughts of starting a company, should you be afraid of going to talk to people? I mean, uh, from an IP standpoint, do you, do you recommend filing IP first and then kind of going to have these exploratory conversations? Or do you think that just let kind of serendipity take its, uh, you know, take its turn there and synchronicity and, and see if they can potentially add to it. Uh, I guess some people might be afraid to share their idea for fear that someone might steal it. You know, I understand that. Uh, it depends on, on who the person is. If you're going to talk to advisors to, to get advice, consultants, and you're going to have a, a, a cadre of those uh, for each idea that you have. No, I understand. You have to sort of protect yourself. Uh, but as a mentor, uh, and that somebody that, that, that you trust or who will guide you, you know, it's good to be able to trust someone. Um, now, if uh, someone is uncomfortable with that, uh, you can always file a provisional patent. You can put some ideas, you know, put your ideas on paper and file something, or even put your ideas on paper, sign them and, and date them. Uh, th those are all, those can all uh, provide protection. Uh, but if you don't trust someone, obviously, you know, they won't be a good mentor. Uh, it's important uh, to protect yourself, but also at some point, you're going to have to be able to talk to others and, and trust at some level to get good advice. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to reiterate what you said about filing a provisional patent. I think that's very important. If, if you listeners, if you do have any question about who you're speaking with, always file a provisional. You can write something down. It doesn't have to be fancy and it costs $140 as a small entity to file a provisional patent. So it's, a, I, I totally agree. It's always a, always a good idea. Yeah. And remember a provisional patent is just a placeholder. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's it, it just basically to document that you had an idea. Mm -hmm. And whenever you do a provisional patent and you've later on filed a patent, they may look very different, but at least mm -hmm. it gives you the comfort level and protection to talk to others. Right. And from my understanding, the, the provisional almost, it is published after a year, but it, like you said, it can look extremely different from the actual utility patent that you file. But in case there is any litigation down the road, the provisional can be very important to document that you had these ideas on that date. All documents are important, even if they're not filed. Uh, so if you talk to anyone, my suggestion is have a, a notebook uh, which uh, each page is numbered. So, so it's shown that you didn't remove anything or add anything and date them and write it. You know, when I had, this is what I learned from one of my co-founders at Trivascular that any conversation he had with anybody, including regarding the business and regarding any aspect of the, of the company, uh, he would write notes uh, and then uh, date them and say, that day I spoke to X, Y, and Z about such and such. Here's what we talked, very brief summary. Mm -hmm. And those types of things can become very helpful down the road, not only to juggle your mind, but also if any legal issues come up. Mm -hmm. Totally. If you... Uh, you definitely want to have that written down in case somebody does help you with an invention or they add a component to it. You always want to make sure to include them as an inventor, uh, because that can cause a lot of problems down the road. Uh, or if you don't want them to invent, it's also very important that you say that to them, <laughs> you know, so, so that you, you don't get into that sticky situation, uh, on the back end. 
that's particularly true if you're in academics and if you have an idea uh, out of academia and you want to involve other academicians, so that, that, that's important. But those are very you know, nitty-gritty details of, of the stuff down the road. If somebody's thinking about those things, it means that they've made a lot of progress already. That's right. And that brings us back. Thank you. Just one more question about you that I definitely want to get into if it, what you would suggest if our listeners would like to start a company. So you've co-founded eight companies, several exits, you've advised dozens more. What do you think makes you different from other physicians? I mean, it's kind of incredible that you're a practicing physician and you've co-founded so many companies and had several successful exits. So uh, what makes you different? No, I'm not any different than anybody else. I, I, I am just as dumb and just, or just as smart as the negative. In fact, most people I meet are smarter than I am. Uh, it's just that having been at the Stanford for that period of time, and again, observations, especially Mike Dake. Mike Dake was one of the most creative guys I've ever met. Mm. Uh, he had ideas every which way. Mm. And and he didn't commercialize all of them, but, but and, and he didn't do much about, I guess, 99% of his ideas. But that was that was quite a learning experience for me. But then you look around and you say, okay, well, Tom and Paul and Peter, you know, all these guys are here. They're making money off their ideas. And how do I do that? And then gradually I learned. So the idea, the, you know, the, the thought process is that if there's a problem, there's a solution. And in that solution, you can do both good and well. That's right. Okay. That's great. And do you think you know, there's, there's a difference between being somebody who, you know, tries to tackle a, a large number of problems versus being focused on one and taking it through to completion, say commercialization. Because I think what, what's important to say for our listeners is that, you know, it's not all about money, right? But it, it is important that you have partners who can commercialize your idea or your device uh, so that it does get to patient care. Uh, because if there isn't a return for a company, they aren't going to commercialize it. Uh, and and your your device will never reach patient care. You brought up a good point that reminds me of something that, that I've discussed with potentially best, you know, entrepreneurs, future entrepreneurs and, and the companies who come at, for me for consultation. If you look at the whole process of invention, I, I'm going to give you some examples here. From the idea, back of the napkin idea, you put something on that, you know, on a paper, you see a problem and you want to solve it, to the design of the product and then prototyping and then following the patents and the IP and then going through the fundraising and then all the stuff, the stuff that's involved in the testing it, preclinic, benchtop, preclinical, clinical, and then trial design and then going through the regulatory process and now it starts the manufacturing and the scaling to commercialization, many, many steps. Which one of those do you think is the biggest hurdle? Probably towards the end, I imagine. It is the last step. It's the commercialization. None of those, I mean, you see a lot of people get stuck in the, uh, oh, the FDA you know, process mm -hmm. or, or a fundraising or the IP mm -hmm. or it, none of the, I give engineers, I'll give you that. You'll solve all the problems, the trial design, the regulatory, all of that. It's all about commercialization, it's the conundrum of commercialization. So when a pro an idea comes to me or a startup comes to me, I, I assume they have solved all of those. And I look at that last step and I ask myself, what is the commercial potential? Will the users buy it? Who's going to buy it? Yeah. Who are the stakeholders? They need to understand the stakeholders and who's the customer, you know, and, and mm -hmm. what you know, whose unmet need are they addressing? Mm -hmm. Remember, when I talk about stakeholders, it means, you know, the payers, the patients, the doctors operating, the companies, whose unmet need are we trying to solve? Uh, and, and increasingly, it's not the patient's unmet need or the doctor's unmet need. It is the payer's unmet need. You know, what are the customer acquisition and sales channels and who, who's going to pay for it? These are the types of mm -hmm. things that goes into my mind before I, you know, step into something. And uh, mm. let me give you two examples here. Interesting. Please. Uh, this is, you know, in the past year, year and a half, I, I see a lot of startup companies. I see a lot of deals, both for consultation and investment. You know, a company came to me with a very, very interesting idea that they have, it's a software-based idea uh, based on CT imaging that 
you know, would prognosticate carotid disease. Okay. Hmm. So uh, think about it. Interesting idea because we're, you know, treating all these carotid, uh, you know, diseases, but we don't know which one is the one that's going to prevent or cause a stroke. Right. We just hmm. don't know. We just go by it, by the, you know, the, the criteria that, uh, that were established 50 years ago of, of, uh, you know, degree of stenosis. Mm-hmm. Great idea. But the problem there is, I, I, again, I give them all the developmental uh, problems, re- regulatory, you know. That they figured it out. Uh, yeah, yep. that's, you're going to figure all of that. At the end of it, let's follow the money, okay? Mm-hmm. That you, who's going to pay for it. If you think about that, what you're doing, you're taking an established pathway for patients that goes from a, you know, internist typically to a vascular surgeon, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, a vascular surgeon, and who does a uh, duplex ultrasound and a vascular lap, most of the time their own vascular lap, and you're ch- switching that and the decision-making to CT. Mm. Right, so you're changing. Radiologist, right? You're yep. changing the pathway of patient flow and decision making, and the, and more importantly, the dollar flow. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think the commercial potential of that is going to be? Right, flow. and yeah. then yeah, and then and then and there's no payment for it. They're creating something, mm-hmm. and that, that that doesn't bother me because you can always uh, you know go to CMS and get payments for it. But the pushback exactly. would be probably high from from the vascular surgeons who might lose out on this vascular lab that, you know, they have control. Exactly. It's the fundamentals of patient flow and the flow of money. That's why, you know, most fibro patients don't get embolization. Now, compare that to another company that has the same type of approach to different disease entity, and that, that's abdominal aortic aneurysm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Also CT-based, also software, also a prognosticator. Who should get treated, right, of the abdominal aneurysms? But there, there is no change of the flow of patients because those are the patients who are already getting CT exam, who are already getting diagnosis, right? There is no changing the dollars, the dollar flow, nor the patient flow, right? So instead, mm-hmm. therefore, you know, which one do you think is going to be more successful? Well, probably, you know, if I were to invest, I would invest in the latter rather than the former. Mm. Now, the, you know, the former guys, they're smart enough. They're going to figure it out, obviously. But, but those are sort of examples of, of uh, that last bit of that process that we talked about, commercialization. Mm-hmm. It's, that's what you need to think about and all this stuff that just, we just talked about. Oh, that's great. Yeah, you really do need alignment of stakeholders. And like you said, uh, it's kind of the last yard that that can be the most difficult to overcome because that's where you're trying to, if I might summarize, that's where you're trying to uh, change behavior. And, you know, changing behavior is probably one of the hardest things we can, we could possibly do. Exactly. As opposed to, you know, the four, you know, this process of, you know, if, you, if you're trying to solve an unmet need and you have a new device, you know, you look at this uh, efficacy, complications, user-friendliness, and cost. It's more, more, you know, obviously more extensive. Quantifiable. Yeah, more extensive than that. If you look at those, say, which one of those, you know, is my new idea going to address? And it's going to have to be all of those. And it don't take your eyes off of the cost at the end because as we talked, you know, as we said, who's going to pay for it? And that all comes into that commercialization piece. There was an idea of navigation uh, that, uh, you know, came out of a very famous uh, U.S. university, but they're also part of a very capitated system. And lots of investments, in, and it was in some venture forum, uh, it was just a sexy idea as hell. It just looked great, but it was expensive. At the end of it, I asked the CEO of the same system. I said, would you guys buy it? He said, oh, no. Hmm. So that tells you whether you should invest or not. Wow. Okay, that's great uh, so far. I think that's a really good segue here. So uh, to summarize, you know, keep your eyes on the last yard here uh, when you're when you're developing an idea. It, none of this happens in a vacuum. You do it stepwise, right? The whole process from unmet need, prototyping, uh, fundraising, that's stepwise. But 
you have to keep a bird's eye view over everything and you need to have at least some answer for every single step along the way, including the last one. Who's going to pay for it? Why would they pay for it? And who stands to lose from it? Uh, Because if they, you know, if you implement this and you get it to commercialization, there could be losers. For example, you know, I'll throw out there uh, HeartFlow, the the company here uh, close to where I am that's changing the way we diagnose cardiac lesions. And they absolutely are changing uh, the whole workflow process. Instead of those patients going straight to maybe the cath lab, uh, now they're being able to rule out low risk patients with CT. And that, that definitely has been probably a mountain for them to climb. So with that, now that we kind of have a bird's eye view, let's jump back to the beginning and let's say, so, so our, our, our listeners want to start a company. Um, we have a couple of steps here we'd like to go through. First off, let's start with the desire to start a company. Why start a company in your mind? What is, what does it offer for, for practicing physicians? You know, it, it's, it's exciting and it's, uh, wanting to do something about it, wanting to see your idea out there and, and in play and in the hands of others. Uh, there's a certain satisfaction beyond just, uh, the financial gains. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to minimize the financial gains and the incentives that finances, you know, uh, provide, but it's, uh, but it, it is, uh, you know, great satisfaction to see your product out there in the hands of others and, and that you have uh, solved the problem. Uh, the, as you know, uh, this life of a startup or going through a start, startup is a roller coaster. A lot of highs and lows many times, sometimes even in a single day. So it's not, you know, it's not for the weak at heart. No, that is what I can definitely attest to that. It's absolutely uh, true. The day-to-day variability is huge. So let's dive into that a little bit. Tell me how difficult are startups in terms of hours, stress? You know, do you spend nights and weekends working on, on startups? Do you stress about it for long periods of time? Or, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about some of those highs and lows, maybe. Yeah, the answer to all of those is yes, yes, and yes. Uh, so yes, after hours, yes, on weekends. Um, and because, you know, uh, during working hours, I had made a conscious decision that I'm going to keep my day job. Um, mm-hmm. and th- that could be both bad and good, uh, in how much risk you want to take. Yeah, as I mentioned, uh, earlier, you know, finding a mentor, but just as important as finding people who would help you with the process. So let's say you have an idea. Hey, I'll give you an example and let's, let's go to Nurabi. Okay. okay. Uh, that the story of, of uh, trivascular was more fun, but Nurabi is more practical. So, so, uh, and then I uh, remind me to talk about a couple of other things like laser associated scientists, because there's a lot of learning mm. curves over there for the new guys who, who are getting into the business. You know, when I came down to Southern California from Stanford, when you were in the clinical, when you were in academic environment, the neuro and peripheral ventures are separate, right? We, we never did stroke. We never uh, mm-hmm. went above the neck. The most I went above the neck was to put a cross and stent in, and that caused a lot of problems for me at the Stanford also. So when we, when I came down here, there were three international radiologists, including myself, and we did a stroke. And so they told me, oh, we do a stroke. You, you go learn it. I said, well, I've never done a stroke. I have no interest in a stroke. He said, yeah, mm. well, you don't have a choice because mm. there's three of us and we're taking calories yeah. third and you got to handle it. Wow. Wow. So long story short, I learned about stroke and then the first stroke patient comes and I'm doing it. And I said, wow, this is space is in dark ages. And this isn't, you know, this is in the late 2000s. Right. Uh, there's nothing here. There's a mercy device that works, you know, at the best 50% of the time, and then we have to give TPA. It was very frustrating to get to the site of clot and not be able to do anything. So that started this whole process. So there's got to be a better way, the usual, the usual sort of thing. You know, a few years before that, there was a guy by the name of Chris Shin, medical student at Stanford, who is, by the way, a successful VC and an entrepreneur himself. Mm-hmm. And, and he was working uh, at a group at Guidant, which they developed stuff. And he had a, you know, a stent on a wire uh, sort of idea that they had filed IP. He was aware of it because he was working in my lab, but I had nothing to do with it. 
So I, I, it seemed to me that, yeah, that's a good idea. We could do that. And then I, I'll trace it and found out that the idea is, you know, was guidant and was it, you know, guidant was split between Boston Scientific and Abbott and that, that idea is in the Abbott. So that patent family, mm-hmm. I put some ideas together and I went to my contacts in Abbott and I said, well, okay, uh, I need those patents. And they went around and said, yeah, well, we're not doing anything with it. Here it is. And let's discuss terms. So we discussed some terms. Now, all of that is settled. Now what? Now I need, mm-hmm. I need engineers. I need somebody to run it. I need a full team that looks credible, at least two or three people that we can go raise money. And mm-hmm. so I went to a few people I knew, uh, and, and then the, uh, you know, the second person, the first guy I wanted that just didn't take it seriously, was, didn't come. The second uh, person uh, I knew had not run a company before, but he was part of the startup. Uh, and he was incredibly smart uh, and thorough. So I convinced him after some arm twisting to come and join us. He came on board and he brought uh, an, another engineer on board and, and, and he had a fantastic mentor. That became Noravi. Once you have that idea and you get past that step, you have to recognize where do you need help? You need engineering help? Do you need business help? And you have to gather people around you that you trust, you like, are capable, who complement you. And then the company starts. Fantastic. I think the the team is so important early on. But so how did you fund this? That's a good, you know, I, I wonder uh, if you're a physician out in private practice, you've got this, you got this idea, you know, there's a technology out there that you think could be maybe a little better and then you, it could be commercialized. But you also need funding to hire your your co-founder and the engineer. So where did that come from? Yeah, the what I have done uh, throughout all, all the companies that I've been involved with is that I use equity as early on as investment. Uh, and I have no problem imparting with equity to bring the people that I want in. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. what I did here. Uh, I made them, uh, I made the uh, CEO my equal partner and a co-founder. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, and then when the engineer came on board, uh, we didn't want, you know, he was a very high-end engineer. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot of money to pay him. So we gave him equity and we made him, well, we told him, we'll make you a co-founder, which looks good for his resume. So the early on for solidity, you know, uh, the filing IPs and things of that sort, you know, most of us can afford that and you put some money in and, and formation of the company. Uh, but once you get into even prototyping, it can't be, you know, it's not that expensive. But uh, when you want to go seriously and in earnest, uh, you need uh, you need money. And you should do a whole program on, on ins and outs of, of how to raise money. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that we've done, my, uh, the CEO that I brought, he wanted to move back to Ireland. And he said, one of the advantages is that we can bring government money in. And so even in the U.S., there are a lot of paths for non-dilutive money to come in, you know, through the uh, Small Business Administration. Yeah, uh, SBIR. Absolutely. And and then uh, and you can uh, get a lot of research money. You know, there are a lot of companies even around here, they know that they're like $15, 16000000 million in it, uh, all grants. Um, it, 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 it can be difficult to, and time consuming to get grants, but at some point you're going to have to get serious money in. Now, there are, if you have a network of individuals, uh, that invest, that always is great because the VC money or venture capital money, in my opinion, should be the last money you bring in. Okay. But then, uh, you know, if you're looking for 15, 16 million, 17 million, it's hard to, you know put it together through a network of a few people. You have to have a big amount of money and they, Lots of money. they, they, yep. they invest and you have, you have to have a connection. You have to have, you know, somebody to connect you to those, uh, and friends and family early on. And then you have to go out there and start raising money from institutional and, you know, institutional money, which is VCs. Yeah or corporate strategic. Absolutely. Now, I recommend that uh, Lindsay McCann uh, in Vancouver has a great talk on pros and cons of raising money from uh, from strategics. But, but those people don't know what the term strategic means. It just means bigger companies who are commercializing. They're commercial companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we 
call them strategics. I don't know why. Like Medtronic, Johnson and Johnson. Bo- yeah, Boston Scientific, yeah. I mean, you name it. The, the, there are pros and cons of raising money from them and having them at the table uh, as, as investors. So uh, I, I would recommend uh, everybody to, to uh, sort of listen to that. Okay, great. That's a great recommendation. Now, you mentioned, you said VC money should be the last money to bring in. Just to close that loop, why is it because they, they're the most expensive, I assume? Yeah, they're very expensive. Now, as I mentioned to you, I, don't, I, I use equity as an investment. You know, when I bring mm-hmm. my advisors in, first of all, let me finish a thought on investment. I want to go into this advisor and the equity. VC money can be quite expensive. Uh, yeah, they take they take a chunk of your company, and if you go to Series B, that means the second you know stage of uh, financing, getting ready to go through pivotal trials or even commercialization. Uh, the founders usually by then have lost control of the company, and they're they're uh, you know in the med tech and the medical device uh, business, your shares are probably going to be in the single digit percentages. Mm-hmm. So to to you know, you want to bring that money when, uh, you know, when do you definitely need it? Uh, mm-hmm. But also, uh, there is such a thing as a speed. Uh, and if that money means that you will get to your target faster uh, by diluting yourself, so be it. Uh, because, again, 100% of nothing is not worth anything. No, that's a really, really good point. It's this constant push and pull, you know, tug of war between being frugal as possible to keep your dilution down as a co-founder, uh, but also negotiating speed and path to commercialization, because more than likely if you're doing it, possibly somebody else is doing it or somebody else is working on a solution that would completely obviate the need for, for your device. Yeah. Anytime you think you have an, a new idea, the chances are that five people are ahead of you and five people are at the same time as you. Yeah, that is a really good way of looking at it. And it always keeps you on your toes if you're, if you're thinking like that. So you know, the, the one other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, we were talking about building teams and all of that, that you want to bring mm-hmm. uh, some advisors and consultants and beyond that mentor, mentor just one or two people. And, and, and I see a lot of mistakes a lot of startups make, and they try to get uh, frugal and stingy with parting with uh, equity. Once you identify the critical people who will help you along the path, now that this could be scientific, could be medical, could be trial design, could be with the FDA, or could be with the strategics, because there are those who are influencers out there, right, and have influence. Those are the ones that I have, at least in my companies, have been very generous with. Uh, and, and I see it as an investment, you know. Uh, in some of the companies that I'm, I've been involved with, I give my ad- medical advisors, not not mentor, the advisors, 1% of the company each, which, uh, which wow. yeah, flips people. But you know something? It's a, it's a fantastic investment. Every time I've done that, uh, they have come through. And every time somebody has done that to me, I have come through. And, and so I want to advise you that once you identify who those key people are, use your equity, not unwisely, but as an investment. It is an investment. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I'm going to hit on again that you need to make sure that those are the, the guys that are going to solve problems down the road. And when you identify them, you absolutely should use, you know, the tool of, of equity to, to keep them, you know, they have skin in the game and they're going to, they're going to pull the levers that they have at their disposal to move the, move the project, move the company one step down the road. You said, what's the, what are the elements of success? You know, there are a lot, the, uh, the, the, uh, commitment of, of the entrepreneur or the inventor, uh, there's, Mm -hmm. you know, famous saying by Mark Cuban. Uh, who's famously said that to be successful entrepreneur, uh, you need to be committed to your company. And if you have an exit strategy, you're not committed. Now, with all due respect to him, in, in med tech, that, that does not work. Yeah. Because, no, no, yeah, no. because you're, yeah. <laughs> you're not, you're, it cost a lot of money to, to build from the ground up with a medical device. I, I, you know, more than I do, how much, how much does it cost for, you know, to get a device all the way? It's not, it's, you know, healthcare <laughs> is a highly consolidated ecosystem. Okay. It is truly an oligarchy. 
uh, commercializing, going back to what we first talked about, the commercialization is the heart of the system. Commercializing, uh, you know, for a startup, you may not have the bandwidth or the muscle to do that. You need some of these strategics. Therefore, exit the strategy gotta be gotta be in your mind from day one am i gonna am i going to uh commercialize this and make it into a business or am i go you know to go the way of ipo there have been three recent very successful ones obviously in this space by the way all three of them tried to sell themselves an exit and they couldn't so they went down the other path and and mm. uh, you know lo and behold they were very successful because they had geniuses on the commercial side of things or do I want to have a plan on exit? And that's where uh, knowing who to bring in as advisors really helps. Absolutely, because they can tell you things like what what I've had to learn is that you mentioned this before. Commercialization is probably one of the most important and hardest steps, and that includes getting your product out to hospitals. And getting your product out to hospitals requires sales distribution channels. And those distribution channels are probably the most expensive part of the entire project uh, they can be. So what we're talking about here is potentially leveraging the distribution channels of the strategics. You know, Medtronic for sure has people in every hospital. So does J&J, uh, Abbott. You know, a lot of these companies are already have a presence there. They already have staff that your device may be able to fit into the bag, the sales bag, so to speak, of their salespeople. Whereas if you were going to do this yourself, I mean, maybe you can speak. How much would that cost to, to hire a sales team and train them up and, and, and send them out into the world? It's very expensive. And if you get to that stage, you know, you can bet that there's a founder unless you finance it yourself, in which case, you know, you probably have enough money. But but you're you're right. down into one or two percent. Uh and and you're you're right. diluted down to nothing. Uh, and so yeah. Right. Yeah. That's key. That is so key to understand that that these I mean, these sales representatives are they are specialized. They're highly specialized and really good at what they do. And they are not cheap. Uh they can, you know, their salaries are, are very high as you know, as they should be. And then and then you have to include all of the things like benefits, et cetera. So that I mean I, you know, I'm, I'm, these numbers may be wrong, but I mean they, they may cost upwards of four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars per sales representative including all in with all of the benefits and things. That, that's true. But remember, it's not just putting the sales force together. As you know, as a, you know, I, I mentioned that MedTech is, a, is an oligarchy now. It is about contracting. It's on the, by the way, on the provider side also, there's only a few handful of large uh, purchasers for hospitals and uh, health systems in the country. You have to talk to them. So it's a, you know, single device companies, no matter how good your device is, are probably going to have a hard time in the future, um, you know, because you don't have the, the leverage. The, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so for many, many reasons, the environment for commercialization is very, very difficult. That it has to do with again consolidated ecosystem that medicine is. And so, I guess bringing this full circle, the reason why we're bringing this up is that this is why having strategic partners can be so helpful uh, because they have the leverage with group purchasing organizations. They have the sales channels. They have all of these things that have already been figured out. So, uh, you know, getting, once you have your ducks in a row, it, it can be a good idea to approach a, a strategic, um, you know, when you're considering exiting or, or partnering. You know, that, that you could approach them early on also. So they, they sort of have an idea of what you're doing. Uh, but that also has to do with whether your invention or your idea is a company or a product, right? Right. Yeah. If it's a product, you know, you have a better design for an existing technology that, that you know, or, or are you creating a whole new category or new treatment? You know, if, for example, let's use the, the, the stents. You know, stents have been around for a while in the, uh, for the arterial side. And if you wanted to change the stent a little bit for the arterial side, that would be a product. But if you apply it to a new disease like veins, well, that could be a company. So those are the considerations that, you know, it has to go through an inventor's mind, the entrepreneur's mind, what are we going to do? If it is a product, then obviously you want to license it and you want to involve a, a company or a strategic early on. 
If it is a company, mm. then the timing depends on your, your fundraising cycle and a lot of other considerations. That's a key distinction that I, you know, I'd love to kind of get a little bit more contrast on between a product and a company. So when you're saying stents, if you're just reinventing the stent, basically that would be a product. And the reason that would be a product is because there are so many of them out on the market already that you would not go through the process of hiring a sales force, uh, determining, you know, who are you going to sell this to? Because that really at that point, the hospitals can just choose another iteration of, of their device. Why would they give you kind of the time of day? Yeah. I mean, the company that basically a product is something that has a lower market potential. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, you know, I give you an example of, well, you know, when fibroids came along um, and fibroids were becoming a thing, embolization. You know, if you had a different catheter, like the, you know, RUC, the Robert Uring curve, you know, that's a product. But if you had a, uh, you know, a, a different embolic agent way back then, that could be a company. Mm-hmm. No longer is the case now, uh, you know, in terms of embolization. Now, for example, let's say you want to get involved in the prostate embolization. Mm-hmm. Uh, most product there would be uh, a product or inventions, it won't be companies, unless you have all of a sudden, let's say a drug eluding bioabsorbable bead of some kind with some magical power, and, and that could be a company. On the stents, we use the example of the stents, the stents in the SFA, renals, carotid, whatever, you know, they, they, they were products uh, until, but if you wanted to apply them to a whole new disease, veins, that would be a company. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's great. I think looking at the, the, the market impact is a great way of deciding product versus company. Is it an iterative process? Are you iterating on a design that's already there? You're making it a little bit better, or are you truly innovating or creating a whole nother class of device? Um, that's, that's probably a, a good way of looking at it. Now, briefly, uh, nuts and bolts here of forming a company. You talked a lot about kind of the ideas, the desire, the elements of success. Team is so important. Funding we touched on. Formation. So early on, well, you tell me, when do you get, say, attorneys involved? When do you talk about equity between co-founders? Uh, kind of nuts and bolts, corporate housekeeping stuff. Um, the, the agreements between the co-founders got to be day one, even okay. before you get the attorneys involved, because the expectations have to be clear. Otherwise, uh, you know, a year into it, there's going to be all sorts of conflicts. Okay. Mm-hmm. There, there has, there has to be, if there are multiple people involved, they all have to know what their role is and what their equity is that that's got to be settled. Uh, you know, formation of a company, it doesn't cost very much. Uh, you can do it online or, to, you know, we usually go to typical corporate, uh, you know, uh, uh, offices and, and set up a company that shouldn't cost you very much. And also remember any uh, corporate housekeeping that lawyers would do for you nowadays for startups, you can also settle them, uh, uh, settle the bill when you raise money. They all do that. You don't have to pay them up front. So the, the corporate lawyers don't cost much. The, the, it's the IP attorneys that can, can cost quite a bit. Although I must tell you, I pulled one of the, one of my companies, I pulled a coot and I went to a very famous, uh, uh, you know, law firm uh, in IP and I, and I, the idea was hot enough that they agreed for a percentage of the company, which was, wow. you know, it, 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 that's rare fraction of a percent. Yeah. To do it for free. Um, it, so any, everything is negotiable. Remember, especially with lawyers. Wow. No, I think that's a fantastic point, especially, especially with the corporate attorneys, the guys who are going to put together your formation documents, who are going to document your capitalization table, which is your equity split, you know, puts together your, your board and, 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 uh, everything else, all the documents you need that is very negotiable. And in fact, a lot of these attorneys, uh, as you said, will defer uh, defer their payments for either some amount of time or combination of time. And until you raise a certain amount of money, uh, and once you hit that funding milestone, then they're like, okay, you need to, you need to pay the bill. IP 
is different. That's a lot of times you that was a unique situation you're in, but a lot of the intellectual property uh, attorneys, patent attorneys will, will not defer. Uh, and they can probably be the most expensive attorney fees you pay um, and probably should be uh, when you consider the value they can add. That's true. That's true. It's, it's uh, having a good patent attorney uh, that really pays for itself down the road. Absolutely. And so, all right, that is great. That is such great information. Now, I want to talk a little bit about how do you do all this work-life balance? What do you, you know, you, you've got, you've had, you founded, co-founded eight companies, four have exited, you're, a, you know, world-renowned IR, you're publishing, all of that. You seem very busy. So, so how do you achieve work-life balance for our listeners out there? Is it, po- first off, is it possible? Oh yeah, of course it's possible. It doesn't mean I got it right. Yeah. I, I definitely got it wrong. If you have young children, uh, uh, treasure that. Mm-hmm. Definitely treasure that because once your kids uh, hit the late high school and college, I mean, they're gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the, 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 you know, there is definitely pe- balance in favor of the family, uh, early on. Uh, I, I, you know, my, my children are older and they're out of college and things of that sort. And, and so it's easier for me to spend my weekends, uh, you know, working on my hobbies. My wife says that she says, you know, I work at the hospital to pay for all the uh, intellectual property attorneys. Um, Tell so, <laughs> them. Yeah. Um, so, so I support my hobby of a startup companies, but the, you know that it's an art uh, to be able to get the balance right between uh, between different priorities. So my suggestion is you have to prioritize. You know, if you want to have a successful company, you you have a checklist and you go down your checklist. Every, every worthwhile endeavor in life needs to have a checklist and you go down your checklist, mm-hmm. uh, create a checklist for yourself, prioritize, uh, what's important to you and stick to those priorities. And that's fantastic. Okay. What a great talk. I think if I were going to summarize some important points that you said, and there were a lot of them, so I'm going to definitely going to miss some, but, uh, at the beginning we talked about always think about the entire process. Commercialization can often be the hardest and most expensive part of developing a device. You need to think about who is going to pay for it and what effect uh, is it going to have on the various stakeholders. Next is team. Uh, Where do you need them? Who compliments you? Uh, Find them and make sure to use equity. Equity is a powerful tool to recruit, so don't be afraid to use it when it's necessary. Next, mentorship. Always find a good mentor uh, and, you know, potentially uh, advisors as well. Uh, finally, understand, you know, the difference between a product and a company that will really help you down the road define the pathway that the device needs to take. Is it completely innovative? Is it is starting a new class of device or is it using a, a device in a new part of the body? Uh, that can be a company, but that means it's going to be a lot more money, uh, going down the road, uh, to get to commercialization. Whereas a product is, did you iterate on something? Did you make a new guide wire, a new, you know, micro catheter that's more flexible, uh, a new stent. Those are along the lines of products. You're definitely going to need some strategic help, uh, with the distribution channels. Wow. All right. You, you've said a lot of things. I don't know. Is there anything I missed that you would put in there? Prioritize work-life balance. You need to also prioritize with everything you do, make a checklist and, and just go down the list to make sure you don't, you don't forget anything. Did I forget anything? <laughs> I forgot a lot. But <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Well, uh, Mahmoud, thank you so much. We would love to have you back. There's just so much to talk about. You can't do it in an hour, but each one of these things that we've talked about could take an entire show and we would love to have you back. Well, it was fun and uh, thanks for having me. Take care. Bye.